Hello and welcome to this podcast presented by LexisNexis. Because the law is everywhere at the heart of our lives and our discussions, this series brought to you by LexisNexis and guests will cover current issues that impact us daily. Thank you for tuning into this podcast about practicing mental health law in Canada. I am joined today by the general editors and co-authors of a chapter on this topic in a new release by LexisNexis entitled Law and Mental Health in Canada, Cases and Materials, which will be available both in digital format and in print in just a few weeks. With me today are Anita Zaghetti and Dr. Ruby Dand. Anita is a lawyer in Toronto who specializes in mental health justice. She has represented clients with serious mental health issues for 30 years in Ontario and eight in Nunavut. She has handled more than 10,000 cases appearing before administrative tribunals and all levels of court, including 15 times in the Supreme Court of Canada. Ruby is a full professor of law at Thompson Rivers University in Cantaloupe, British Columbia. She teaches mental health law, human rights, and disability law. She started a student-run legal clinic to afford representation to individuals in mental health matters and has won teaching awards throughout her career. Also with us today is Jolene Hansel, an associate lawyer at AGP LLP in Ottawa, where she practices as a criminal defense lawyer who also represents clients with mental health issues. Jolene will be moderating today's discussion. Over to you, Jolene. Anita, I'm going to start by asking you, so I've seen many of the chapters in this book are geared towards law students, but the final chapter in your new book, Law and Mental Health in Canada, is a practical guide to representing people with mental health issues. So why did you want to include this special chapter in the book? Thanks, Jolene, for that question. Uh, First, let me address why I think this chapter is important for new lawyers or for that matter, more senior counsel thinking about representing people with serious mental health issues who may be weighing the pros and cons of going down this path. Individuals who have serious mental health issues are an exceptionally vulnerable client population who risk losing basic civil and legal rights whenever they come into contact with the law. Their charter protective rights to liberty, bodily integrity, and autonomy are always at stake. Because of historical discrimination, the clients have been marginalized in society. They have been victimized and traumatized. Many practicing lawyers continue to harbor baseless concerns about the client group, worrying that they are a difficult to serve population who may drain meager resources or even pose safety risks. This book dispels those unfounded myths and stereotypes. It instructs the reader on how to address and eradicate implicit biases and represent clients with serious mental health issues ethically, professionally, fearlessly, and zealously. It reveals the joys and rewards of practicing in the mental health justice arena. It invites new lawyers to join a vibrant bar who do important social justice work in courtroom and tribunal level litigation every day. Following up on that, Anita, do you think clients with mental health issues are currently being served appropriately in Canada? Two things on that. First of all, counsel is not readily available to many people with mental health issues in many provinces and territories. Access to legal aid for mental health matters is severely limited in most provinces other than in Ontario, 
where counsel of choice is generally available through legal aid and the private bar certificate system for most tribunal proceedings. We need to change that across Canada and enhance access to justice for these vulnerable citizens by ensuring sustained and enduring models of legal aid funding. Second, even where representation is available, there are significant problems. I do a lot of appellate work. That means I get to see inside what is happening in mental health litigation on the ground. And I'll be frank, a lot of what I see is terrifying. Of course, there are now many experts in this area who do a wonderful job. Unfortunately, though, there are also generations of lawyers who completely misperceive their role as counsel to persons with serious mental health issues. That ineffective assistance costs the clients their liberty all too often. And I ask myself, why is this happening? Are lawyers purposefully negligent or even ignorant? And I think not. I believe that the proper role of counsel to persons with serious mental health issues being one that is truly and always client-instructed has simply not been taught to people working in the area. The message has not been received clearly because it has not been forcefully sent. So we do send that message here by explaining why following client instructions is the cornerstone of professional representation and professional responsibility in relation to this extraordinarily vulnerable client group. Ruby, I'll have a question for you in just a second. But before we turn there, Anita, how do you think we bridge that gap? This book is is a very great starting point, but is there more that lawyers can be doing in order to make sure that they're representing clients with these mental health issues well? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And I think the responsibility is shared across the profession. So one of the reasons why I think a lot of lawyers just kind of go about, you know, the business of not doing uh, a professionally responsible um, job at these various hearings is that tribunals are not uh, taking note of uh, where counsel falls down. So Tribunals are often only too happy to have the path of least resistance, to have counsel there who are not really forcefully advocating the client's rights or the client's instructions or their position, but sort of going along with whatever the doctor or the hospital, uh, you know, or the crown thinks ought to be happening. So I think the responsibility is shared. And I think that if counsel who are not uh, following their client's instructions and advocating fearlessly and zealously, were told that they're not doing an appropriate job in the hearing room and got that kind of real-time feedback if there were consequences to not taking your client's instructions. Um, I think they would get the message by hearing that. So I think it's a shared responsibility. And by educating around the importance of client instruction, uh, such as through our book and through various seminars and webinars and and organizations that support lawyers, uh, the more places the message is clearly conveyed, the more likely we'll get through. And while we're here, I will say there are organizations where counsel can join, such as the Law and Mental Disorder Association. Uh, You can join for free and get support from other lawyers and get CPD. uh, and, And in that way, get a clearer sense of what you're supposed to be doing. 
That's that's great to hear. Thanks, Anita, for sharing that. Ruby, turning to you, Anita's told us about how this chapter is useful for lawyers. Um, I'm wondering, what about law students, those young, bright minds? In your experience, experience teaching law students, how is this chapter going to be relevant for them? Thanks so much, Jolene, for that excellent question. So just following up on, on, on that great question, I mean, Anita really emphasized the aspects of why this chapter is so relevant to lawyers at all stages. And so in particular for law students, this is, chapter will enable them to really understand the importance of the practice of mental health law, the opportunities for them to increase access to justice for clients experiencing mental health issues, the significance of client-instructed advocacy, and the real challenges of practicing mental health law and mental health litigation. It's also really important for law students to understand the frameworks that we've addressed within the chapter of intersectionality, trauma-informed lawyering, and mental health within the profession. One aspect is that we address the calls for action in the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, the TRC, and the approaches on how law students, lawyers, and advocates can increase access to culturally appropriate treatment and care for both Indigenous clients and clients within equity-seeking communities when they're interacting with the mental health system and mental health laws. Through an intersectional lens, we also highlight the vulnerabilities our clients are experiencing and how our professional obligations as lawyers representing these clients are heightened. This chapter will relate to all law students interested in practicing mental health law, but it'll also be relevant to those who practice in areas related to mental health law, including, for instance, criminal law, tort law, human rights law, disability law, family law, and many others. Thanks so much. That's, that sounds like it covers such a great range of topics that's going to be really important for law students. Anita, do you have anything else that you wanted to add? How did you envision this chapter and how law school law students might use it or receive it? Um, you know, that's, that's a good question, too. There, uh, everything that Ruby has said, I would obviously endorse. But um, one, one good use for this book might be... Um, as a supplementary or adjunct text to in other courses. So while we do um, intend for it to be the main textbook in mental health law, mental health justice courses in various law schools across Canada, and we're proud to know that it's already being used in that way by courses in some uh, law schools, mental health law uh, there is room for it, just as there is, I think, a need to teach disability rights uh, and disability law in various other disciplines. I think mental health issues and their intersection with the law come up in, in pretty well every other area of law as well. So for those who are interested in the intersection of mental health and justice, they may want to use the book to inform their studies in other areas of law and um, think about, you know, furthering their academic studies in that way as well. And um, while I'm here, I, I will say, um, you know, one thing that I, I think about is when I was in law school at the University of Toronto in the late 1980s, which I like to say sounds prehistoric, probably because it was, 
um, there was one course on psychiatry and the law, and it was it really was fascinating. It absolutely piqued my interest. But the focus at that time was on mental disability in relation to things like forced sterilization and psychosurgery or lobotomies, you know, these gruesome and unforgivable injustices that now largely belong to another era, thankfully. Um, today's courses on mental health law at law schools are significantly more modern, uh, but I have to wonder, is there a focus on practice? I, I think we hear from law students that in many law schools, there is not an experiential training or practical component. Academ academia, no offense to Ruby, I know she won't take personal offense to this, but academia, in my experience, does tend to be, you know, academic. Um, so I do also see a significant role for this book in contributing tips on practice and, and bringing the academic component of this very interesting area of law uh, into the real world, into the idea of practicing and providing services to real live clients. That's a great point. And, it, you know, as, as you've both spoken about already, mental health issues are, of course, social justice issues. And so being able to use them, this book um, outside of the law school and in, in other faculties, I think would be in tremendously helpful for students. This entire book is about mental health law. And we're talking today about practicing mental health law. Anita, can you tell us what you meant about mental health law or mental health justice as it's, as it's referred to throughout this book? So 30 years ago, it's funny to even say, but 30 years ago, when I became a lawyer, at least in Ontario in 1992, there really was no such thing as quote unquote mental health law. I have a very vivid memory of going to the first ever meeting of an organization that was formed in 1997. And even then, there were maybe five people who showed up to the first meeting. Uh, interestingly enough, some of the practice areas that we cover in this casebook have existed forever, at least in England. Um, coroner's inquests were first held there in the 11th century. The notorious case of Daniel McNaughton, who was found not guilty on the reason of insanity, goes back to 1843. In colonial times, persons with mental health disturbances were held in jails. So there's nothing new about the law removing rights from people who have serious mental health issues. What is new is that lawyers can build their practice around providing services to this client population, either exclusively or predominantly focusing on protecting their legal rights in any forum. So not just restricted to criminal defense or criminal defense lawyers arguing NCR cases or fitness matters or civil litigators arguing consent and capacity matters. It doesn't have to be isolated into those silos. So when we use the term mental health law or mental health justice, which I personally prefer, we mean an area of the law pertaining to the rights of persons with serious mental health issues in any forum where the issue arises and the clients find themselves in conflict with the law. After all, the client population is the same. The legal issue that presents may be different, but there is tremendous utility in being able to understand all the relevant legal principles, being skilled in acting as counsel in all the applicable areas of law, 
and serving the same clients who have come to trust the lawyer over the course of lawyer-client relationships that often last many years or even decades. Do you think, then, Anita, that there's some utility to having um, mental health law integrated more into um, law school programming? I know for most students, there's a class that they can opt in to take this specifically to mental health law, but this is just such a, a topic, as you've explained, that kind of infiltrates many different areas, right? Civil, criminal, family um, different aspects that I wonder if uh, that might help serve the population. Yeah, I think there should be. I think mental health law and mental health justice should be integrated into many different law school courses and curricula. I think it would be helpful if law schools thought about uh, providing some experiential training through their existing legal clinic models and and have some um sort of expertise building within within various legal clinics that provide um, services in, in criminal law or in labor law uh, or, you know, supporting members of unions. I think mental health issues, uh, you know, are so prevalent. And uh, chances are, if you have a client for long enough, they will experience a crisis. They may well find that there's a proposal uh, for them to be in a hospital or find themselves in a psychiatric hospital, find themselves criminally charged while they're in a crisis. Um, so I think having knowledge of these things that, that come up because of the overwhelming prevalence of serious mental health issues in our population that's escalating as a result of COVID-19, I think it would be uh, important to consider integrating this area of law uh, throughout the law school curriculum. Now, in chapter 19, you identify some common themes and experiences of people with psychiatric histories. Their experiences of discrimination, intersectional barriers to access to justice, and trauma stories. I'd like to talk to you first, Anita, about the types of discrimination your clients have historically faced. Right. So, I I have identified really um, three major stereotypes that lead to predictable patterns of discrimination uh, that individuals with serious mental health issues most commonly face. The first is dangerousness. The second is cognitive impairment. Uh, and the third is an inability to care for oneself or to make decisions in the person's own best interest. So I'll just give some examples of that. Um, as I say, these are the most prevalent stereotypes. Dangerousness associated with the presence of serious mental health issues it leads to particular uh, prejudice and discrimination that uh, is at the root, for example, of the disproportionate numbers of those in emotional crises who are shot and killed by police in those interactions. The sort of presumption and the association with dangerousness is a big contributor in my own experience and my own view to the indefinite detention that unfit or NCR accused often face that goes on, you know, in, in my own experience and opinion too long. The second most common uh, stereotyped association that I see is that people with serious mental health issues experience significant cognitive impairment. This stereotype 
is malignant because it reduces access. It is a, a barrier to access for individuals with psychiatric histories in their educational and vocational pursuits. Uh, higher education providers and employers may not select a candidate with a serious mental health history because of a uh, misplaced and wrongheaded presumption that mental illness is somehow accompanied by cognitive decline or impairment. And um, one manifestation of this prejudice is uh, mandatory mental health leaves at universities, including at law schools across the country. When someone's experiencing a mental health crisis, they will be forced to leave their studies for the duration of that crisis. Uh, and that's actually very, very detrimental to the person and their mental health. And finally, the third and most common category that I see, and the, this is maybe the most pervasive and in the legal realm can be the most damaging, is this notion that if you have a psychiatric history or psychiatric label, uh, that you simply can't be trusted to make your own decisions or to look after yourself appropriately or to determine what is in your own best interest. This is the um, bias, implicit or expressed, that it often manifests in itself in the provision of legal services where lawyers either won't take on clients who have mental health issues for fear they won't be able to make decisions either at all or make decisions in their interest, or that they will be difficult clients to manage. Or once the lawyer is retained, uh, you know, the lawyer might substitute their own judgment for what should be happening in the litigation, all of which is, is clearly prejudicial and detrimental to the individual. So these are some aspects of discrimination that result from effectively stigma associated with serious mental health issues. I'll say this, the stigma is so unfortunate because one of my, uh, one of the best parts of my job is seeing, you know, the success of my clients uh, when they're getting proper treatment and, and they're doing really well. And uh, it's just, it's so rewarding to see that. And uh, it's, it, it's horrible that they still are subject to such stigma and discrimination in the system. And hopefully through books like this and conversations like this and all the more conversations that come, we'll be able to, to shake that uh, more in the future. Let me just follow up with that um, on that with you, Jolene, because um, people assume that if you are working for individuals with psychiatric histories or people with mental health issues, you are working necessarily with a particularly disenfranchised population. We're talking a lot about uh, barriers here and 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 trauma histories, all of which is is true. That being said, because mental health issues cut across the population and themselves don't discriminate and affect anybody, and I think we'll hear either today or in the book. Certainly, we look at statistics in terms of who's affected. You know, I've had I've represented. Many professionals, lawyers, nurses, engineers, accountants um, who who experience serious mental health issues are in crisis, find themselves detained. And uh, equally, you know, people with serious mental health issues who, when they get the supports that they identify that they need and have access to um, education and to supports and to housing and income maintenance, 
end up, you know, going through university, becoming professionals, living very full lives, um, completely reintegrated into the community as contributing citizens. So, um, you know, there's no single profile in it. I don't mean to leave the impression that this is who the, the person is. Of course. And I think one of the one of the struggles is those aren't the stories, you know, the lawyer and the engineer and the accountant who have succeeded through the system and have, and have um, gone on, right? Those are not the stories that are often talked about when we're talking about, you know, mental illness and those individuals' nexuses with the system. And so it's, it's challenging, I think, a little bit um, for people to understand, you know, just for people to remove, you know, those labels and discrimination and and everything that comes with it. Uh, but it's it's so important to have those conversations and conversations like this one in order to keep breaking down those barriers. Absolutely. Ruby, I'll turn to you. Why is the intersectional lens that you've put on this book such an important aspect? It's a great question, Jolene. So Throughout the book, we use an intersectional lens, and by using that lens, we address the aspects and highlight the significance of how we as lawyers and advocates need to be mindful at all times of the many aspects of discrimination experienced by the same client who's also experiencing mental health issues, but can be coupled with social factors such as race, gender, sexual orientation, identity or expression, and other social factors. We highlight the fact that clients from Indigenous, racialized, and equity-seeking communities experience multiple barriers to accessing justice when interacting with mental health and justice systems. And by adopting an intersectional approach in mental health law, this enables us to consider the historical, social, political, and cultural context, which contributes to the experiences and barriers an individual may face. We also highlight some of the qualitative research that I've conducted with racialized clients and clients from equity-seeking communities experiencing mental health issues, interacting with the mental health and justice system. And some of those findings include aspects of participants who felt that their intangible qualities, such as their accent, mannerisms, body language, gestures, and demeanor were attributed to a perception of being less credible. Some participants who were before the mental health tribunals felt that language and communication barriers led them to being deemed as non-compliant and incapable. A few participants had their privileges within the hospital taken away and others experienced seclusion and restraint. Often, clients from Indigenous, racialized, and equity-seeking communities are at an increased risk of being misdiagnosed with schizophrenia, a higher likelihood of experiencing seclusion and restraint, and a potential loss of their charter-protected liberty interest, such as indeterminate detention in a psychiatric facilities. The reasons for these inequities and differential outcomes are complex and not easily discernible. And that in itself, uh, its finding reflects on the aspects of why it's so important for us to be able to use an intersectional lens. Thank you. So as I understand it, people with lived experience of mental health issues, they have a significant trauma story. And you talk about this in the chapter. Anita, can you expand on that for me? What is trauma? Right. So we have we have quite a um, a well-developed section on trauma-informed lawyering in the book. And I know 
you know, a lot of people with tremendous expertise are talking about trauma-informed lawyering now. And um, we wanted to focus on it a little bit in the specific context of our, our client base. So here's here's what I think a trauma is. And you know, there are a lot of different takes uh, and definitions, but my own view is a traumatic event uh, is something that has robbed a person of control. Either something happened out of the person's control or someone has taken control of the person's life away from them. The event or actions of others have left the person with long-standing consequences. Most clients with serious mental health issues have experienced multiple traumas. We know that statistically, they are likely affected by all aspects of abject poverty, including homelessness or inadequate housing. They may be experiencing food insecurity. They are very likely to have been victims of crime, property, or personal. They are likely to have experienced abuse, verbal, emotional, physical, and sexual. They have very likely experienced loss of their liberty and autonomy. They have likely been criminalized or forensicized. This means that they've likely faced criminal charges and been convicted, often of very minor offenses, due to a paternalistic, benevolent approach of trying to get help for them and or uh, to address perceived deficiencies in civil mental health systems. This may include prior NCR or not criminally responsible or unfitness findings that are really ultimately geared towards sustained periods of forced treatment. People with serious mental health histories have likely been involuntarily committed, forcibly treated, logged into seclusion, or physically or chemically restrained. They have likely had rights to make decisions about treatment and finances removed. They have likely heard derogatory slurs or been labeled with damning diagnoses. So people with mental health issues are frequently told by psychiatry that they have a permanent lifelong condition that's going to require medication treatment or other treatment for life, and then there's no prospect of cure, all of which may or may not be true depending on your perspective. But the way that these diagnoses are communicated uh, is itself traumatic for people, and it's a, it's an aspect of receiving a diagnosis and uh, following recommendations for treatment that's often overlooked. So all of these things and many more things that we don't have time to touch upon now, but that are explored in the book, uh, constitute significant trauma uh, that individuals with psychiatric histories frequently experience. And Ruby, I'll ask you, individuals that are, have experienced these significant trauma histories, what are some comma trauma responses? Thanks so much, Jolene. The trauma the person incurred often threatened their safety, liberty, or autonomy. The person can be scared that the trauma will reoccur and may often be reminded of the trauma. The trauma the person incurred, it can have shook their confidence in others, systems, or fate. And the person's sense of safety and security may have been shaken and undermined. 
The person's confidence and trust in systems or others has been undermined, and the person may now also be angry or fearful or withdrawn or mistrustful of others. We have to recognize a legal system may provide additional exposure to adversity. This can include direct trauma, secondary, and institutional. And we also recognize that clients may experience legal matters as extremely stressful, damaging, violent, or re-traumatizing. Thank you. And so in that context, right, we're dealing with an individual who's had um, an incredibly traumatic event that's happened to them or has had or has a a very serious trauma history. And, you know, they're accessing with a system, the legal system that has a very high potential to exacerbate that trauma. Anita, how does a trauma-informed lawyer act in this context in order to assist their client? Right. So um, again, lots of helpful suggestions out there in, in different um, formats and forums. Um, Again, you know, we have our own sort of homemade um, how to avoid re-traumatizing the client approaches that's um, that are born out of their uh, out, out of our collective experiences. Um, so while there's no approach, uh, no one approach that will work with each and every client, and there's no guarantee that a lawyer can avoid triggering a trauma response. Uh, well, there are things that we can do to minimize the risk of re-traumatizing our clients. First, always remember the client is a whole person beyond the charge, the criminal charge that they may be facing and the, the traumas that they've experienced. So always, always treat the client with the great respect uh, that you would treat any other client. Always approach the client's matter with an open mind and without judgment. Always be honest with the client about all aspects of their case and your role in their litigation. So it's important to clearly explain the legal process and what the potential outcomes could be. Clearly explain the limitations on your role as their lawyer and what that role is. It's also really important to facilitate clear communication in all respects, including accommodation for your particular client's needs in all spheres. So for example, don't ask the client to describe their previous trauma or traumas. Explain what is important for you to know about them, including past traumas, if they are pertinent to the case on which you're acting as counsel. But consider offering a choice to the client about how you will come to learn about that aspect of their life or their case. For example, for some clients, it may be easier for them to provide you a written summary of their history, particularly of past traumas. They may prefer to just send you an email rather than sit in an in-person or virtual or phone interview with you and go through um, their traumas, again, which is itself an experience that's profoundly re-traumatizing for a lot of people. Um, now, in terms of communications with your client who has a psychiatric history, it is really important to speak with individuals with mental health issues in quite exactly the same way that you would speak to anyone else. Do not condescend to individuals with mental health issues. This really shouldn't have to be said 
but just based on my observations of how others speak to my clients, uh, it does actually bear repeating. So explaining things to to um, your clients in a patronizing way, assuming that the individual will never be able to follow the proceedings or understand what is happening is profoundly insulting. It's harmful and it's extremely hurtful, obviously, to the clients. Uh, one thing that's really important to remember when you're working with this client population is some individuals may need to take regular breaks for the simple reason that they need a break from the stress that's inherent in, in these proceedings, particularly with respect to virtual proceedings. But also, um, it is important that you understand that most people with serious mental health issues smoke cigarettes. There are many reasons for this, including that cigarette smoking reduces some of the most troublesome adverse effects of antipsychotic medications that a lot of the clients are receiving. Um, so it's a really good idea to give um, people who need them lots of time and access to smoke. Flexibility in approaching interactions and communications with uh, your client is really important. Um, and one thing you can do to avoid re-traumatizing clients and make legal proceedings more accessible to them is to share the information that I've just shared with you with all justice system participants who are in a position to control proceedings. So when you appear with your client in front of a judge, in front of a tribunal, you can say to the chair, please be mindful that my client is going to need breaks. And although it's hard for us to do that as lawyers, demand those breaks for yourself when you need it too. But if you know that your client is a smoker and after you know an hour or two into the proceeding, they're not going to be able to participate or follow along because they simply need to smoke, just declare that they need a break. Uh, and it, it is incredibly helpful to meaningful participation and access to justice. So just be mindful of these kinds of practical things uh, that ultimately, you know, are fairly common thread um, through the client population, and uh, many of which is is linked to trauma. Anita, I'd imagine that avoiding re-traumatizing the client first and foremost requires identifying, you know, a client that has a significant trauma history, and in some cases that might be more clear than others, right? In cases where the individual is coming to you um, and is going before an ORB hearing or is going before the Consent and Capacity Board or is accessing with the criminal justice system. But I wonder in those cases that are less obvious uh, that there might be a trauma history there, are there any red flags for you or things you kind of look for to to assess. So maybe there's another aspect of this, a mental health component that I need to consider. That's a really good question too. So uh, there's a there's a sense in which I would really urge uh, the equivalent of universal precautions. You know, in the same way as you know, frontline emergency workers simply uh, equip themselves. Uh, with uh, universal precautions, just assuming that, you know, um, rather than trying to ascertain, you know, who has what issue, just, you know, protect against it all. In the same way, I think universal precautions in terms of 
um, being trauma-informed or a good idea, it, it's a, a reasonably safe assumption to simply approach uh, your client base with the assumption that that there is a high likelihood there is a trauma history there. It's You're very unlikely to come ac- across a client who has a psychiatric history and serious mental health issues whose life has not been affected by one of the many significant traumas that could um, present themselves in, in their experience. That being said, uh, you know, it, it, when you have a client with this, there's always red flags um, that you can see in terms of where you might have to take a particular approach and be sensitive to a particular problem that could complicate your retainer. So if you have a client who's simply not getting back to you, and if you're sure that your communications are getting through, but you're not receiving any responses, they don't answer the phone, uh, they don't respond to email, they don't call you back, they're simply not contacting you. Um, you, you know, you may be facing a situation when the person's clearly overwhelmed by the legal proceedings uh, and is is not able to participate because they're avoidant. And maybe you're aware that there's a history of depression there. Maybe you're aware that they are struggling to make decisions and um, and you need to buy extra time. You need to adjourn. Uh, you know, you can't proceed till you get those instructions. And maybe because of a current crisis born out of a previous trauma, something's triggering the person, they're going to need more time or more supports to process whatever is happening. So this is just one example. Uh, if you if you have someone who's very reactive, um, who, you know, is getting, is angry and is angry with you, um, and, you know, it, based on the particular legal issue that you're, you're dealing with, um, you, you might be triggering previous trauma. Uh, if, if the situation they find themselves in, uh, they are secluded at the moment, you are, that situation itself is triggering previous trauma of having been restrained and secluded and locked up. Uh, and that comes up every time someone's in that situation and it can manifest itself in, in anger, uh, you know, and it may be directed at you. And then you have to you know, address that within the relationship because it's not likely about you. It's about the crisis the person's facing and the history of that crisis as it's presented itself previously. So, you know, you, over time, you, you navigate these things a little bit more by instinct. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that things that come up that are difficult in, in lawyer client relationships are often traceable back to the trauma the person's experienced and not likely uh, in any way personal to you. And, um, and that helps sort of deflect that and move the relationship along. One of the other things that our clients are frequently scared about is they, they're worried about being abandoned. They're worried if they're too difficult, um, because in the past they, they, you know, service providers, healthcare or legal service providers have terminated the relationship. So they're worried about that. And, um, you know, if you're able to preserve and maintain the relationship despite these bumps in the road, that that reassures the person and reduces their trauma response. So those are just some examples. Ruby, maybe building on that, what do you see are some of the challenges of representing clients with in the mental health justice system? 
Thanks so much, Jolene. So as we know, lawyers and advocates who represent clients with serious mental health issues appear to both like need and have an infinite amount of patience for our clients. In an article that Anita wrote called Representing a Client Who Has a Mental Health Issue Before the Consent to Capacity Board, Anita sets out a number of issues that we've highlighted within this chapter. She talks about how professional burnout in this practice area is a real and substantial risk. It helps to have others around who know what you're going through, like an office mate, instead of working in complete isolation, and that having colleagues to consult with on legal and non-issues alike has been of invaluable assistance. If your own physical or mental health suffers because of the overwork, you're not going to be much use to your clients, never mind your spouse or your loved ones. So no doubt that this is a troubling concern in all practice areas, but in mental health law, we have to recognize that burnout is something you must be very vigilant about. So as you gain experience in this area of law, you learn not to take the challenges the clients are facing on personally. It's important to draw professional boundaries and limits on how much a client relies on the lawyer, whether emotionally for support or resource-wise in terms of frequency or duration of each contact. It's difficult to advise a client that you can't support them in every area of their life when they have had few or other professional or personal supports. However, for the sake of their legal matter and your own mental health, it's important that legal services are where you focus your energy in assisting the client. It's also important for us to recognize our own triggers and the impact of trauma and specifically vicarious traumatization and external traumas in our own lived experiences as lawyers and to create a space for debriefing and perhaps journaling or engaging in reflexive practice to be aware of our own lived experience and our own unconscious bias and always to be flexible and open as Anita had mentioned previously. Thank you so much, Jolene. Okay, so we've talked about some of the challenges of navigating the system uh, for our clients and some of the challenges of being lawyers navigating the system. What are some of the rewards of practicing mental health law, Anita? So I I really, as you can tell by this podcast, by the, the fact of uh, the book, uh, this you know, this new book and all that I tend to want to write about and teach about, um, that I am really passionate about mental health justice as an area of legal practice. And I really recommend practicing in this area of law. And I um, would uh, encourage and empower and welcome law students and new lawyers into the practice area. Um, it has a lot going for it. So when I was a new lawyer, I did try my hand at, uh, you know, pretty well every other imaginable area of law, real estate, believe it or not, wills and estates, family law. I didn't last very long. I think six months was the cap on the family law before that, you know, that was it for me. And recognizing that everyone's different, but here are some of the uh, sort of bonus points to this area of law. First of all, the law is itself incredibly complex and challenging, both on the civil side and on the criminal side. And I do like to say that mental health law is actually rocket science. Um, maybe I'm biased, but I think you have to be super smart to do it well. And that in itself means that you cannot get bored. 
I I have not heard complaints of boredom by anyone in this in this practice area. There's certainly other concerns and complaints, and you've heard about some of those from Ruby and and others. Um, so it's not for everyone, but it is also definitely not boring. Uh, your clients are are interesting. They have interesting uh, lives, and um, despite you know the challenges that they face, uh, representing the clients can be a ton of fun. Um, and I've certainly had a lot of fun representing my clients, like joyful experiences of working with the clients, you know, helping them um, to get good outcomes. Uh, while the clients are vulnerable, they really do need your help. And generally at a time when nobody else is on their side, or certainly they're feeling as if everyone is against them. Anyway, uh, probably because, uh, you know, the state is trying to lock them up or forcibly treat them. Often their families during those moments of crisis are not supporting the outcomes that the clients want because they have their own conception of what uh, the client needs. So you, as their lawyer, become the buffer between the state and the power of the state, state actors, psychiatrists, medical profession, uh, you know, hospitals, the crown, um, and uh, all of all of those, uh, you know, oppressive forces. Uh, you're the buffer between that and an individual against whom the deck is stacked. Um, so it's really it's a it's a privilege and, and an honor uh, to be able to stand up with and for the client um, and compel the state or its actors to prove their case. And if they can't do that, at the end of the day, your client gains or regains their liberty. And, and really, my experience, there's no more rewarding feeling than that. So you know, I've been doing this for exactly thirty years now. Uh, I've never been bored, as I say, and there really is a lot to love in this area of practice. So I I do encourage anyone who's got a genuine interest, and you have to, you know, you really do have to have an interest in the clients uh, and in the law, uh, but it's definitely worth a try. So I would welcome uh, everyone with that interest to this very special and very unique uh, mental health bar. And maybe I'll just piggyback on that a little bit and say, there's nothing more rewarding than getting an email from a client or from a parent to say, you know, they've exercised their first unsupervised pass into the community and it went well and they took a selfie. And it's, it, it can be so incredibly rewarding to see um, them meet their goals um, and work their way through the system. So that's my plug for people to join the mental health bar that's all the questions i have for both of you today thank you so much for uh, providing us some more detail and some insight into this world of mental health law um, and how we as lawyers can incorporate it more into our practice